My name is Caleb, and I get to be the lead pastor at Discovery Church out in Simi Valley. Um, Simi Valley is a suburb of Los Angeles. I tell people all the time that you either know Simi Valley because A, Francis Chan used to be there, or B, uh, Reagan Presidential Library is there. So one of those two things, you know it. We're just a suburb of Los Angeles, uh, bedroom community. I love being out there, but I just got to tell you, I love this place. I love this school. I know that some of you might be visiting today uh, for the very first time. You might be deciding if this is a place where uh, you want to come and you want to study. You might be uh, visiting and just checking it out. I, I have no idea why you're here, but we're glad that you're here. And we're wrapping up this series called Messy Grace. And during this series, we've kind of looked at four different ways that we see God's perfect grace intersect our lives. And at times it looks really messy, but it really isn't. So the first week we talked about poverty and how God's power just works powerfully through poverty. The second week we talked about families and, and a lot of us come from from families, right? Where it's pretty messy and so we can get that, right? You just wait till you get married, you have in-laws and then it gets even more so like that. And then last week we were able to talk about uh, racial diversity and how that's how God created us, but how our insecurities get in the way and, and really create a mess there. And today I want to talk to you about a very, very difficult subject. Um, I want to acknowledge up front that I know that there are many of us in here that may have different beliefs or, uh, or systems of beliefs when it comes to uh, what I'm going to talk about, uh, specifically uh, the topic of same-sex relationships and being in a same-sex relationship. I I just want to let you know that I know that not everybody here is on the same page. I know that some of you really don't see any problem whatsoever. Some of you see a big problem with it, and some of you just, you know, you can't make up your mind. You don't even care. You're like, hey, I'm here for Jesus, and I don't care about all that. I'm just going to get focused on Jesus. So I want to acknowledge that. And I want us to handle this situation with a word that you know, and I guarantee you it's a word that you don't like, and it's a word I don't like. It's the word tension. We don't like tension because, I mean, there's uncomfortability in tension. Let me me give you some examples because my life is filled with tension, okay? I love sports, but I'm a Chiefs fan. Tension. (laughs) Big tension, okay? Okay, I love Missouri. I root for the L.A. Lakers. I'm sorry, they're the best team in the whole world. I love the Lakers. We have two saved people here. I think DeFazio's saved. He's probably cheering somewhere. I love uh, the University of Missouri. I love Tigers. Go Tigers. But, you know, it's difficult being in California, and it's difficult after this week. Let me just tell you, it is difficult. I mean, I am married to this beautiful, tall, tan-toned, muy caliente Latina named Amy. And in her wildest imagination, she had no clue that her knight in shining armor would look like a cross between Dr. Evil and, and Fester. She had no clue. <laughs> I mean, don't laugh. She wakes up to this every morning. She's a lucky, lucky lady. Let me just be honest with you, okay? Okay, I mean, there's tension. I love Missouri. I live in Southern California. You know, just driving back here and seeing all the fall colors and then going back to, you know, Simi Valley where it's kind of, you know, brown right now because we haven't had much rain and God doesn't like California, I guess. I mean, that that's, you know, there's tension within that. But some of us are facing, you know, different tension, right? Some of you are seniors and you have an idea of what you want to do after you graduate or where you want to go, where you want to study, what you want to do, or maybe a church you go to, but maybe that's 
it's just not coming together. So there's tension within what you want to do. There's tension within the election, right? There's tension. And some of you are like, yeah, I don't even watch it. There's no tension for me. I'm just not part of it, right? But there's tension politically in our country. And we've come to a point where we've really taken extreme sides. And I think that this whole election is really a, a reflection of that, right? There's tension within our, within our love life. Some of you are married and you know that there's tension within marriage. Some of you are dating and you know, there's tension there. And some of you, you don't have tension. You're like, Caleb, I've never had tension. I just love to have a little tension with somebody and hopefully that'll happen when I'm here. Okay. I, I have no idea. I have no idea. You guys need to get your mind out of the gutter. Okay. Um, no, but, but seriously, we all have tension within our life. And again, it goes even deeper than that because some of us have tension when it comes to very serious decisions that we have to make. Some of us have health problems that we've never shared with anybody else. Some of us have issues in our life that we have never unpacked. Some of us have been abused. Some of us have been neglected. Some of us have made choices that we hope nobody ever finds out about. There's tension that we have to deal with. Our life is tension. My life is a tension. Let me go a little bit deeper with you in, in, in my story. Uh, when I was, uh, my, my parents used to teach at the University of Missouri, Columbia, and when I was two, uh, both of them, you know, entered into same-sex relationships and got a divorce. My dad was with several different uh, partners, but my mom was in a 22 monogamous uh, relationship, 22-year monogamous relationship with a woman named Vera. She was a psychologist, and they moved from Columbia to Kansas City, and so I spent my life childhood going back and forth between Columbia and Kansas City. My dad was very much in the closet. My mom, on the other hand, she was very loud and proud. She was an activist. She joined the local board of directors of GLAD, which is Gay and Lesbian Awareness Against Discrimination uh, in the Kansas City area. When I was in preschool, elementary school, they took me with them to gay bars and parties and clubs. Um, They took me with them uh, in, in pride parades. I remember one pride parade I was marching in and I was like nine or ten or something and it it, you know it was it was fun and everything and at the end of the parade there were all these quote-unquote christians on the street corners holding up signs saying god hates you there's no room for you in the kingdom and if that wasn't offensive enough they were spraying water and urine over everybody at the same time and i looked at my mom i said why are they acting like that and she said well caleb they're christians and christians hate gay people and i just thought to myself there i'd never want to be one of those never ever no 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 And I saw this replicated time and again throughout my mom's community. I saw uh, some of her friends who were young men who were in same-sex relationships in her community die of AIDS. And I saw their Christian families in their hospital rooms as they were dying, refusing to touch them, refusing to talk to them, refusing to interact, refusing to interact with us when we would go visit them. And I would ask my mom over and over again, why are they acting like this? And she said, Caleb, they're Christians. Christians hate gay people. And again, I thought there is no way that I ever want to be one of those. So by the time I got to high school, my life was really warped. It was uh, out of line. I didn't have a centered worldview. I was sneaking out at night and uh, partying it up. My parents really didn't care. I mean, you know, my hair was down to here. And since then, the Lord removeth and addeth other places. It's not funny. Um, We don't talk about that. So, I mean, this is just who I was when I was in high school. 
And I remember, I remember I got invited by a Christian high schooler to go to a Bible study for high school students led by this Christian high schooler. And I thought to myself, this is going to be perfect. I'm going to go and I'm going to uh, pretend to be a Christian. I'm going to be a ninja Christian. I'm going to learn about faith and then I'm going to dismantle their faith. And so I didn't own a Bible. I grabbed a new revised standard version. They revised something. I don't know. And took it with me. And I had never been in a conservative or evangelical Christian household before. And you got to understand, I walked right into the house and immediately I just thought, man, this is weird because these people look like they raided a Bible bookstore. I mean, I'm all for Bible bookstores, but good night, people. You know, get a life, okay? I walked in the hallway and I'm looking at the, at the, at the walls and I look at my friend. I said, why are there framed pictures of sheep and lions and a little shepherd kid? And I said, is this part of the deal? If I turn Christian, do I have to get a sheep picture? Because I'm out. I'm out. We're not going to do that. And so I went down, and, and we were all supposed to be reading from 1 Corinthians 9, and I was in 1 Chronicles somewhere. They're all reading from Paul. They get to me. I read a verse about somebody getting impaled. And... Um, not Paul, by the way, if you're not familiar with the Bible. And so they said, Caleb, where are you? I said, well, I'm, I'm in the, uh, in, in First Chronicles. They're like, oh, you're in the Old Testament. I said, oh, so there's a new one, I guess. There's updated 2.0. I mean, I had no clue. I just thought that the Bible was just the Bible. But I learned something very, very interesting about Jesus. The more I got to know him through studying the scriptures, that Jesus had very deep, uh, theological convictions. He had very deep expectations for how you and I should live our lives and treat one another. But he also, on the other hand, had very deep relationships with people who were far from God. And people who were not like him, which I guess is pretty much all of us, right? And I thought to myself, I could get on board with somebody like that. And within a span of a summer, I ended up um, coming to Christ, getting baptized, going to a CIY, giving my life to the ministry. And I hadn't told my parents. And I was so nervous. And let me paint it to you like this. If you can imagine how a same-sex attracted or gay teenager feels when they come out to their uh, Christian parents, I was a 16-year-old teenager coming out as a Christian to my three gay parents. It's the truth. And here's the response. They kicked me out. And I had to spend a lot of time with some friends before I was allowed back in. And so when I go and speak different places, especially to teenagers and that kind of thing, they'll say, dude, you have no idea what it's like. My parents kick me out. And I'll be like, actually, I do. I do know what it's like. It's just flip side. It's redo. Then they're like, oh, man, that's so cool. All right. <laughs> Didn't know we were going to get excited about that. But, but I, I really learned in this time, I really learned how much God loves people, no matter who they are, no matter where they are. And I learned that faith is filled with tension. Tension of how you and I should believe and how we should treat one another. So what do we do? What do we do when we have this tension in our life? What do we do when we're not sure about, about what, what, how we should respond or, or how we should treat somebody? If we have somebody who's living in a way or making a life choice that we don't agree with and we know it's contrary to scripture, what do we do? How do we act? How do we live within this tension? Because too often people go to the extreme sides, right? I mean, John 1, 14, 17 say that Jesus came full of both grace and truth. And most people, you know, 
know, they go to one side or the other. They go to the grace side over here and, and they're just like, God loves you and God loves everybody and God loves this person and that person. And their version of God is Buddy the Elf. I mean, these people are annoying, right? But they're all about the grace and all about the God loves you. And then you have the people on the truth side. They know the Bible really well. They want you to know that they know the Bible really well. And when, and they're so spiritually mature that when they say the name Jesus, they add extra syllables. It's not Jesus, it's Jesus. And they talk about the Lord like this. And they're all the way on the truth side. Because we don't like the tension. That's why people get out of it. But there's something that we miss when we get out of the tension. And I want you to live in the tension. And that's how we should respond to uh, the, to the discussions around uh, same-sex relationships, around the LGBT community. But also, I would say, just about any part of our life. So if you have your Bibles or your mobile devices, you can go to John chapter 8. We're going to have the words on the screen here. Um, we're going to join Jesus in time in his ministry where a, a huge event happens, right? And I mean, if Jesus came for the first time today, I think you can agree he would have his own reality TV show. Because amazing things happen to Jesus that never happened to anybody else. I want to acknowledge up front that I know that some of you automatically look, oh, he's preaching out of, you know, uh, John 8, beginning with verse 2. You know, that, that's kind of a questionable verse. Well, here's the deal. I know that when, when you're in Bible college and you're a student, you're like, man, that's questionable. But when you get out into the church and anything in here is fair game, no matter if it's in italics or not, okay? And this is a powerful, powerful story that I want to share with you. And you know this story, so we're just going to go through it real quick here and then make some observations. Look at this, John 8, 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? The beginning of verse 6 right here just drives me nuts. It says that they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And I've read this story over and over and over again. And you know, I mean, legally, theologically in the Old Testament, they're acting the way that they should act, right? Because if you go back to Deuteronomy 22, it does say in Deuteronomy 22, if you find a man and a woman in the act of adultery, you take them outside the city gates and stone them. And did you hear what I said, by the way? A man and a woman. And I read this story, I'm like, where's the dude? Where's the guy? I mean, he's not even part of this. And I guess what makes me mad is that they don't care about her. They are using this woman as much as the man who was having an affair with her was using her. Listen to me on this, okay? A theological conviction should never be a catalyst to devalue another person. If your theology allows you to treat people poorly, you might be right in what you believe, but you are committing heresy by the way you live. And I look at this and I'm just blown away. Now, if I was here, I would like say all these different words and I'm emotionally reactive and everybody would be a, a casualty. That's not what Jesus does, okay? Jesus does something weird here. And I know you've read this story a million times. And I tell my congregation all the time, Jesus does something weird. And I say, it's not bad weird. It's just weird. It's awkward. It's something that we don't understand why he would do, right? He does that kind of stuff all the time. Here's what he does right here. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. That's not how I settle arguments. I tried it not too long ago with Amy. We were disagreeing about something. I said, hold on. It did not work. I do not recommend doing that, by the way, okay? Don't ever do that. Even if you're dating, don't do that. It doesn't work. And so a lot of people tried to figure out what it was that he was writing in the, in the dirt and the dust and the ground. And I found this really interesting passage all the way back in Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. See if you can figure out the significance here, the connection. 
It says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel, and all who forsake you will be put to shame. And those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. If I were a betting person, I would say that Jesus was writing the names of the Pharisees in the dirt. That they thought that this woman who had committed this grievous sin was outside of God's grace. And yet Jesus says, she's actually closer to God than you are. Because you're acting in all truth and no love, no mercy, no compassion. You're not living in the tension. You're taking sides. Grace refuses to take sides. And so they don't get it. And you look at this in verse 7. It says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Now, Jesus flexes his theological muscles here because he knows that they believe, like he believes, like we believe today, that God cannot sin. And so he knows that none of them are going to throw a stone. And so what, what he ends up doing right here, he ends up putting them in a checkmate. He knows because of that belief, they will not throw a stone because, number one, they don't want to lie. If they threw a stone and said, we're without sin, they'd be lying. God thought that was a big enough deal to put in the top ten. But then, on the other hand, they knew if they threw a stone, they would be claiming to be without sin when only God is. In a sense, they would be claiming to be God. And the very stone that they used to throw at the woman would be used to throw right back at them. I mean, we have a lot of unchurched people that attend our church. And I tell them all the time, you may not be in a place where you believe in Jesus yet, but you've got to admit, he's got style. Okay, he's got style. He can argue his way out of anything. And you see this in the, in the result here. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And this is the whole point of the passage. This is what you need to underline. This is how we should handle these situations. And this is how we should live with intention. I love what Jesus says here. It's actually one sentence in the original language. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. I mean, in this one moment, Jesus tells us and shows us and models for us how we should perfectly model grace and truth and how we should handle these situations. I mean, I saw saw a similar illustration from Reggie Joyner using a rubber band, and I thought it was great. I mean, you look at it over here, people who are on the side of grace over here and not truth, it's like holding a rubber band from one side. You're weak, you're flimsy, there's no power in that. If you hold it from the other side, it's like saying, I'm all about the truth, but not the grace. Weak, flimsy, there's no power in that. But where's the power? If you refuse to take sides, like Jesus did, if you decide to approach people and life filled with grace and truth, like Jesus did, look at this. Look, when you stand for both grace and truth, where is the power? The power lies in the tension of the two. I'm telling you, there's power and tension. And we lose a lot when we run away from tension. And there's tension in our faith. We believe in one God but the Trinity like there's no tension there. Jesus is fully God and fully human. The Bible is written by God but by people. You know, you can still look attractive and have too much hair. I mean, come on. We have (laughs) tension all over our faith and all of our lives. God is completely sovereign, but he's given us choice and responsibility within that sovereignty. How do we explain that? I don't know. Maybe it's not our job to try to be Sherlock Holmes and figure out the tension. Maybe it's our job to live in that tension and to confuse people. Maybe that's our job. And you feel this tension, right? 
Somebody you love is in a relationship you don't agree with. You're like, I love my friend, but the Bible says this, but my friend keeps on doing this, but the Bible says this. And you want to run away from the tension. And that's why people end up changing their theology. That's why people end up um, changing friends and, and just really distancing themselves. But I know what this, what this tension, there's a name for it. It's love. And I believe that love is the tension of grace and truth. And when you look at this story, when you look at John 8, you see Jesus living in the tension so that he can love this woman. And if he did not live in the tension of grace and truth, he would not have saved this woman, nor would he have loved this woman. You see, here's what I want you to understand, okay? The tension of grace and truth allows us to love people no matter where they are, no matter who they are. Okay, The tension that too many of us run away from saying there's nothing wrong with this, even though the Bible says so, or saying the Bible says there's everything wrong with this when we end up shaming the person we don't need to. When we take sides, we hurt people, we misinterpret scripture. When we live in the tension, not only are we living the way that Christ lived and approaching life the way that Christ lived, but the tension of grace and truth allows us to love people no matter where they are, no matter who they are. So I want you to live within this tension. Here's what I want you to do first, okay? Here's what I want you to do. Here's how we live in this tension. Here's how it gives us a chance to love people no matter where they are, no matter who they are, okay? Be known for what you're for, not against. Be known for what you're for, not against. And again, I know that's nothing new. I know that all of you know that already. But when you look at this, the Pharisees are known for what they're against. We're against this woman's sin. We're against the adultery. We're against what she did. We're against, we're against, we're against. And look how Jesus handles it, okay? Jesus never condones what she, what she does. But at the same time, Jesus stands up for truth in a different way, right? He's known for what he is for, not against. That is so incredibly important. When I look at Jesus' examples right here, here's the second thing that we need to do, okay? Embrace the difference between acceptance and approval. Embrace the difference between acceptance and approval. Acceptance is loving somebody where they are for who they are in that moment. That doesn't mean that you and I throw our support behind every life choice that somebody makes, right? I'm sure you wouldn't approve of everything that I've done, and I'm sure I wouldn't approve of everything that you've done, but that... That puts no barrier up for me accepting you. As a matter of fact, I almost think it's a biblical mandate for us to accept one another, right? That's different from approval. I mean, isn't it Jesus that says in Matthew five forty six, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? Or the Apostle Paul in Romans 2, 4, he says, don't you know that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance? If God's kindness leads to repentance, how much more should our kindness and graciousness lead people to God? And I think to myself, we've really dropped the ball on this. I mean, there's a big difference between acceptance and approval. I remember I, I, I was preaching at this church uh, one time when I was here, and I, it, apparently I did such a good job reading F.F. F. Bruce, his first chapter in Commentary John, because I had a long night the night before. You have no clue, okay? I was preparing for principles of interp, whatever. I brought F.F. F. Bruce. I read it to him. They said, that was phenomenal. How'd you come up with all that? I said, well, it's just a lot of study. I don't know. <laughs> And so I ended up preaching there for 18 months. And I ended up preaching at this little church of about 25 people in a town of 50. We were the largest church per capita at the time. <laughs> Half our town won for Christ. We were the only game in town, too. And so I preached for them for 18 months, talked to them about grace, and finally I was able to convince my mom to come to church with me, who had never darkened the doorway of a church building in years. 
And I didn't know how they would react. And a couple of them were nice. And many of them were cold. And I remember leaving and inviting my mom back the next Sunday. And she said, no, I'm too busy. Well, when I showed up the next Sunday, there were like two elders waiting for me on the front doorstep. They said, Caleb, we'd like to talk to you. And so they took me to the back room. We had, we had two rooms. We had, we had a front room. We had a back room. And there were absolutely no children in the town. It was like a creepy Nightmare on Elm Street type uh, scenario when you, when you think about it. We had all this 1960s uh, children's ministry equipment. It was Anyway, it's like Universal Studios Horror Night. So we went there, back in the back room and we sat down and they said, Caleb, if you want to keep preaching here, don't you ever bring somebody like your mother again. We don't like people like that. And I said, well, I don't like you either. And I quit that day and I walked out and I thought to myself, Lord, if you ever give me the opportunity to lead a church, I want a church that is messy, that is filled with tension. I want a church with people who are using, with people who are in same-sex relationships, people who are struggling with their sexuality, people who are struggling with depression, people who have been divorced, people who are getting divorced, kids who are cutting themselves, people who have had abortions. That's what the church is, okay? Listen to me on this. The church is a beautiful mosaic of broken lives and messy lives that God has united together to glorify Him. The church, too often, is something else. You see, here's what I believe. I don't believe that Jesus Christ ever came to die on the cross for a Pharisee factory masquerading as a church. When they're really a members-only club. That is not who Jesus died for. Jesus died for broken people who are able to own it. And when we accept the difference, when we embrace the difference between acceptance and approval, we are able to love people no matter where they are, no matter who they are. Okay, a couple more things I just want you to know real quick, okay? Um, Think deeper about people, not differently about theology. Think deeper about people, not differently about theology. Again, These people over here, the Pharisees, when they caught this woman, they were looking at her and defining her by her sin. Jesus was very different. Jesus said, no, I refuse to define her that way. He was thinking about her as the whole person. And you see Jesus treating people like the woman at the well and Zacchaeus and other people like that over and over and over again. Think deeper about people, not differently about theology. I remember one time I was having a conversation with my mom. Um, it, It was when her partner was dying of cancer. And I remember I said, Mom, you, you got to understand this, okay? You know, God loves you. And she's like, well, Caleb, you, I mean, you know that uh, Vera and I, we're not sexually intimate anymore. And I'm like, well, first of all, gross. I mean, who wants to hear that from your mother, okay? I don't care if your mom's still with your dad or what, okay? A stork brought me. I don't know how you got here. There was no, no touching when it came to my parents, Okay. And so when she said that, I wasn't thinking deeply enough about her. And I said, so if you're not intimate anymore, then you're not a lesbian. And she said, well, sure I am. Those are my people. That's my community. I have acceptance there. I'm part of a cause and a movement. I have forgiveness there. And I said, you just described the church. She said, no, I didn't. Why would I go somewhere that would shame me and make me feel less about myself? And it really dawned on me that too often people who identify as LGBT, really, for many, the smallest way they identify is by who they're attracted to or who they want to have sex with. The bigger way is through relationships and acceptance and understanding and empathy. And I think to myself, what would it look like if we treated people like Jesus, like this woman, and we looked at the whole person and not just one little area? And maybe if we look at the whole person, develop a strong relationship, it gives us margin to have difficult conversations about holy living. And then here's the very last thing that I want you to know, okay? Don't 
fix people, point them to Jesus. Don't fix people, point them to Jesus. You've got to point them to Jesus. You and I can't even fix ourselves. God never called me to change somebody's behavior. God called me to point people to the cross. Okay? Jesus, in this moment, he pointed this woman towards himself. You see, the tension of grace and truth allows us to love people no matter where they are, no matter who they are. My family and I, we lived in Dallas for about three and a half years. Both my, my mother's partner had died and, and, uh, a few years earlier and she and my mom, or she and my dad separately of one another both moved down to Dallas and they both started attending the church that I was preaching at. And the people at the church I was preaching at, they were nicer to my parents than I was. I mean, do you know how annoying it is when people are nicer to your parents than you are? I mean, even if you have a great relationship with them, you're like, you don't know these people. <laughs> They're trying to get in heaven right now, okay? But, but they kept on learning. And even though they knew that I believed theologically that intimacy is between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage, and that's how God created it, they still kept on coming. And people were treating them with kindness and graciousness. And two weeks before I left, both of them submitted their lives to the Lord. And I think to myself, man, right there. That is messy grace because you have people who are willing to live within the tension of grace and truth because it knew that it gave them margin to love people no matter where they are, no matter who they are. And how does it all go together? I don't know. They're not in same-sex relationships. You know, They're still same-sex attracted. Will they mess up? Maybe. Do they love Jesus? Yes. Are they saved? Yes. Do they believe everything theologically that I do? No. Do they go to church or Bible study when they can? How do all these things go together? I don't know. Grace is messy when it hits our lives. It has never been my job to resolve anything. It has been my job to live in the tension. And that is where life change happens. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to be able to speak on this subject. They can be very difficult. And I pray, Father, that as we go out from here, that we will quit trying to resolve tension that you never intended to be resolved, and we will love people no matter who they are, no matter where they are. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen.